Greetings, lovely people, and welcome to the Dread in the Shed podcast. I am Daddy Cam of the One Love Army, and I am sitting on my bed telling my stories. Now, where was I? That's right, I eventually reached 1983 and I became a dad, and that was fantastic. And I don't think I can kind of talk about that enough. There's so much more to say. It's such a life changing um, experience. Um, and as I say, my feet haven't touched the ground since. But after finishing that last episode, I thought oh, there's a few loose ends and a few things I didn't mention and I should have mentioned. Because, of course, you try and cover a year in 20 minutes. You're never going to do it, are you? So, a couple of things I remember, and I'll in no particular order. One of them, I mean, I spoke about when I was arrested in Victoria Park in my lunch break, having a spliff with my friend Andrew Witter. Um, but what I didn't mention was um, the slight bit of humour there, apart from the fact of me pulling down my trousers and my pants without being asked to. Apart from that, um, was the fact that I brought this nice drawer of it was Red Beard again, Red Beard Sensi Media, and I'd brought it in, and I'd managed to roll my spliff, um, and Witter had actually just rolled his, and I remember looking at him, and he just perfected it you know and he was admiring his handiwork he didn't even get to light it when those five officers came round from behind <laughs> and uh, they took it off of him you know they took mine but I'd managed to get a couple of tokes in and um, so not so bad for me and I also remember mentioning that when they finally let me out of the police station um, that I had a five pound note in my pocket and the reason why I mentioned it is because I knew, because they'd been to my house and taken every little scrap and stick and twig of, uh, of weed that they could, that I had nothing at home. So I went straight from Bethnal Green Police Station and I went down to Sandringham Road and I went and got myself a nice five pound drawer. Now back in those days, you'd get probably like three, four grams or whatever, three and a half grams, for a tenner you know um not like nowadays where you might get a gram but um yeah so i went and i got myself a little draw so i'm not going home and having no weed there and i got home and went upstairs and poor kate of course you know had the police the police had been there but there's my friend sitting there i don't know if it was liz was there and asher was there and a fellow called chris chrissy barker uh, Liz Payne and uh, Asher so it's about three of them sitting there and I thought wouldn't it have been nice if um, you know they've clubbed together knowing I've just been raided and they've been cleaned out and they clubbed together and got me a little something but no 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 so I come in the door and I've produced my five pound drawer and they all looked at me and said we knew you'd get something I thought, hey, friends, eh? Hey, hey, yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, you would have thought differently, but no. Another thing I didn't mention was um, when I turned up with the police originally, when I was handcuffed, of course, I didn't want them, I didn't want the neighbours seeing me handcuffed to these plainclothes plain officers, by the way. And so I, they put a jacket over the handcuffs to um, preserve my modesty, if you like. 
So when Kate threw down the keys, she had no idea I was under arrest. And because it was the time of Sun Ra and myself putting together this um, benefit for Ethiopia, she was just thinking I'd kind of roped in some recruits to help us. And that's what these fellows who were with me, who they were. So whilst I was expecting Kate to be panicking and throwing stuff out the window, she had no idea at all. She was busy ironing at the time and looking after Trin. And uh, of course, my delaying tactics were to no avail but I, I find that really funny as well that was funny I insisted on grabbing the pram and making progress up the stairs as slow as possible but anyway just a couple of things I thought I'd mention and then of course I'd mention that I'd failed my exams um, or failed three of the four exams and um, and passed one of them and that means that was actually turned out to be the end of my um, academic career. I didn't actually get back. I mean, there's a spoiler for 1984. I didn't actually get back to North London Polytechnic. But before I left, there was a, a, an episode or something that took place where we occupied the Polytechnic. Now, the Polytechnic had a few buildings. One was the main one in Holloway Road, which wasn't where I was. I was um, in a building in Ladbrook Grove, not Ladbrook Grove, Ladbrook House, Highbury Grove, around that way. So that's where the Social Sciences Department was. But there was another building across the road from um, the main building, which later became the Rocket Musical Venue. And for some reason, led by Sylvia Harkinson, Daisy Ball from that famous episode, Daisy Ball, who was so much part of my political and spiritual awakening. Um, and for some reason, we, I can't remember, was, was it because of cuts to funding or we decided to occupy the building. So it led by Sylvia Harkinson and myself and a few others, we occupied the building. I think the occupation went on for about a week um, you know, day and night, and um, you know, we got a bit of attention. I'm sure the press were interested, but at that time, North London Polytechnic was a hotbed of socialist idealism and so on and so forth. Quite a lot of revolutionaries in there. I don't know if we achieved anything, but it was fun. That's all I know. I'm just going to mention that that's what we did. It was fun. So here we are, 1983, you know, a few little strokes, extra little brush strokes in there to paint a better picture. And I'm working at Victoria Park, okay? Yeah, I'm arrested, yeah, fine. And I do recall going back in on the Monday, because it was a Friday afternoon they nicked me. And of course my 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 clothes with my jacket and normal shoes were still there. And uh, we had a foreman, can't remember his name, ginger fella, but he was all right. And um, and he said, he said to me, well, I'm to you Friday, he said, I said to him, I got nicked. He said, I thought you did. So they had some idea I'd got nicked, but they didn't let on to management. So that's a brilliant form. And he didn't tell the manager. Management was none the wiser. And I just got back in on the Monday and and we rocked on. So um, that job, I think, went up until October-ish. And it was a, a good job. It was a great job. And, um, and I remember times, they were a-changing. Um, one day... I worked with this Scottish fellow, Brian, his name was. And uh, and there were a couple of girls that were, I think Faye, the names are coming back to me, Faye and another girl worked there. And um, and then one day there was another, well, you've got a female, female, long hair, brown, patent leather boots, 
strange green dress. And Brian said to me, um, you know, hey, what do you reckon of her? What do you reckon of her? You know, this was, and I was like, you know, there was nothing particularly attractive about this particular person. And as it turns out, this person was a pre-op transsexual. Now, this was 1983, so this was all pretty new still. You know, it was, you know, um, I think the whole gay scene was just beginning to kind of come out into the open a lot more. I think, um, you know, from the end of the 60s, things had opened up. When I was at um, secondary school, there was still such a thing as queer bashing and so on. So there was a lot of discrimination against homosexuals. Um, But... I can't remember this person's name, but um, oh, I wish I could. Anyway, she or he came to work as a park labourer, which was quite an interesting job because it's quite a odd. It was, you know, forgive me for being sexist, quite an odd job for a woman, you know, park labouring. I'm sure there's, you know, lots of women doing that kind of thing now. But again, as I say, times were a changing, and um, and you know, I actually got to know him. Her, I can't remember his or her name and um, him or her started to wait for me at the bus stop in the morning kind of came in the same route used to sit next to me I'd I'd be honest I used to find it embarrassing you know um, not my kind of thing and uh, I was still you know maybe a little bit prejudiced shall we say and um, and a little bit embarrassed you know because he she used to come and sit next to me and you know people used to look because you know, big hands, quite big boned, long hair, and a very strange fashion sense. Like I said about the brain, the brown um, patent um, boots um, and the green dresses and stuff. I think you know she then used to wear jeans, but with the same kind of boots. And um, but I did get to know her. She spoke and spoke about you know uh, what she was doing. You know, having to live six months as a woman before she could have the operation and um, how growing up she'd you know been conflicted with her gender and had joined the army to prove to himself at the time that you know how manly he was you know so he could have a fight but um, but no he decided um, that he was a woman and I do recall being outside the park one day and a car full of uh, young cockneys pulled up and they started um, hurling abuse, you da 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 da, queer da 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 da. And uh, I said, um, I said, Do you get a lot of that? And she said, Yeah, she said, um, but I've left people in pools of blood. <laughs> I've left people in pools of blood over that kind of thing. So, yeah, she could have a tear up. Um, but bless her, she used to um, she used to want to talk about washing machines and things like that to the other girls, and the other girls weren't interested. So she tried to be girly with the girls, but the girls weren't really girly girls. And um, and what was it? Yeah, and always combing her hair at lunch break, sitting at the table combing her hair. Bless. Um, yeah, but um, there you go. So I was slowly waking up to a lot more stuff, and uh, I do recall as well the. Christmas, it would have been Christmas 1982, and going to the Polytechnic um, party. And that evening, coming home um, with four men, well, four men in the car was the fourth one, three gay men, and myself in the car. 
Now, I didn't have any problem with my sexuality. I didn't have any problem with um, homosexuality. Um, but it was all very new to me because, of course, back in the day, as a Rasta man, you're born fire upon that kind of thing there, you see. But um, life was showing me, you know, the old world and the new world. And, of course, the new world in which we live, you know, genders are blurred, sexuality is whatever it is. And, um, yeah, we've come a long way. Now then, I'm mentioning that possibly because I'd like to say, and I'm going to claim the title, as the original new man. Now, why was I the original new man? How did I become the original new man? I'll tell you how. Because there I was a student, okay, and I'd flopped my exams, and um, and I'd spoken to my tutor, and we decided I'd take a gap year. I'd take a gap year and sort myself out and then get back to my um, academic career, you know, once I sorted myself out. Now, Kate had, meanwhile, qualified as a state-registered um, SRN, RSCN, and the registered children's nurse as well. So, you know, so she'd qualified as a nurse, passed her exams, and she was a qualified nurse, and therefore her earning capability was higher than mine. So, by the time Trinity reached three months and Kate's maternity leave was over, it was time for me to become the house husband, as it were. Now, there weren't that many at the time. I mean, nowadays, I love to see all the dads taking their children to school, dads pushing buggies. But back in the day, early 80s and in the 70s, you didn't really see that many men pushing buggies and prams and so on and so forth. But let me tell you, I love that little McLaren buggy. And uh, yeah, we'd, we'd race anyone, we'd beat anyone. Um, <laughs> I had such fun with that McLaren buggy. buggy. Uh, and so that was me, the new man. So I was the stay-at-home dad. And um, and it was a fantastic experience. I think um, that time when children are pre-language, when you have to communicate through other means, um, and you establish a kind of telepathy, and you get to kind of um, communicate with a child without language. And so, um, and so I did. And I do recall one morning, I might have mentioned this before, but um, Sunra Francis, my good friend Sunra, he'd split up with his girlfriend and uh, he'd taken to staying up all night and then coming, coming over to me about nine o'clock in the morning, having not slept, he'd go days without sleep. And, um, and there'd be me kind of, Kate would have gone off to work I'll be changing nappies and sorting out baby's breakfast and so on and so forth. And of course, Trin will be screaming and crying, and um, as babies do, it's their job. And uh, I remember him saying to me, she will teach you patience. Well, I kind of, in my mind, I said, what the F do you know? What You know, if you just got on with your life and got out of the way, you know, it wouldn't be such a stressful thing. But anyway, I think I did learn patience. And uh, I learnt, in a very strange way, um, how to have a child screaming and crying, which they do, you know, knowing that this is good exercise for their lungs. And I think if you have fed your child, burped your child, you know, winded your child, and if you've changed that child's nappy, 
and that child still would like to cry and cry some more, I realise it's okay to go and put them in their cot, in their crib, close the door, <laughs> come into the living room, close the door, <laughs> put on some Bob Marley, some Third World or whatever, I demand Levi, um, have a cup of tea and, um, and give it 20 minutes. Let you know, let your baby cry, and and how does that crying not agitate? Is designed to agitate the hell out of you, you know. It's designed to get a parent off a parent's backside, um, and and that's what it does on a deep side psychological level. Your baby crying will kind of get you up and agitate you, or make you do something. How did I do that? Well, let me tell you. It's a bit dark, but it's true. Um, at the time, there were a lot of cot deaths and cot deaths were going around and we were being told not to lay our babies on their front or to lay them on their side or not to lay them on their back there's all these different theories um, and so on and so forth and what I did in this particular instance I thought imagine perish the thought but imagine if you come into your baby's crib into baby's room baby's in the crib and baby's blue baby's not breathing and you know you're looking at your baby now now if your baby suddenly went and screamed it would be music to your ears your baby's alive you know and that's how I did it so that sound of my baby crying became music to my ears my baby was alive my baby had been fed my baby had been burped winded my baby had a clean nappy my baby was in a comfortable cot there was no wolf at the door you know nothing was going to harm my baby so my baby could cry my baby's crying could be music to my ears so there's a handy little tip for you parents you know um or parents to be when um when your baby's crying let it be music to your ears anyway that's an 18 18 minute episode not bad we're gonna get on to 1984 soon but i think i'll leave that for another episode so that was just tying up some loose ends from 1983 and um yeah so for now i would like to say thank you all for listening i'd like to say one love army i salute you all of my listeners i salute you wherever you are in the world whatever you're doing it's blessed love from the dread in the shed who's sitting on his bed yeah give thanks thank you for joining me i will be back all right one love